If you could ask God anything, what would you ask? Life is full of big questions. In his brand new book, Will I Be Fat in Heaven? and Other Curious Questions, J. John answers 38 questions that we ask about God, the Bible, the world, and everything in between. How can God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit be one? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Will we recognize family and friends in heaven? And life's ultimate question, does God care about me? Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com. Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Graham Seed, telling his redemptive story. Graham Seed, a warm welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you very much. It's so good to see you again and to have you uh, on the programme. Your book, One Step Beyond, wow, Uh, what a story. Well, let's try and tell that story as best as we can in the programme. You grew up in Middlesbrough. Yes. A rather violent little boy at school. Yep. Why? Searching for something really, John, you know, I was um, uh, at the beginning of my life in the early years on, on the estate in Berwick Hills, um, you know, that was our world on them streets, you know, the other streets, were, you might as well have been living in Brazil, but our world was them streets and um, it, was, it was a lot of fun and most people were in the same boat as me, there was no dad around and didn't see me mum much and um, when I was about 10, we moved and my mum got married again and, and moved out and you know I remember I, I spend a lot of time with troubled young people and I tell them this story all the time about the feeling of rejection. I remember being in my nan and grandad's car and um, looking out the back window and my mum was walking down the street with this her husband and it dawned on me I wasn't part of that life anymore and it hurt, it really hurt me a lot you know. And I suppose from then on, I think the first six months of moving to this new estate, I was a little bit of a recluse, you know, like felt a bit vulnerable. Because like I say, my oldest estate, Berwick Hills, was like a mile and a half away. And so I started to get very angry. So the, the vulnerabilities turned into anger, you know, and then people were saying things about my nana, who was mentally ill and... She was going to a mental institution every day. And so people on this estate who had mums and dads and that would say sly remarks, you know, about my nana, about me not having a mum and dad. And I went to the shop and adults would say, keep away from him and things like that. So I suppose all of that turned into like a a rage, really. Yes. Yeah, it was was a rage, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the school said to the police that you were the worst kid yeah. they'd ever had in the history of the school yeah yeah so and then by the time you left school y- you were you had to go to the police station something like 33 times yeah that's right yeah i'd gone to a lot of times i joined this gang and uh when i was about 12 and it was a gang that was just in anarchy I didn't know how to spell it but i was involved with this gang that was just in trouble and I was one of the youngest, and um, so school went out the window really. And uh, I was—I had this image to keep. Now was I was a 
a gang member and this, that and the other, you know. Absolutely. But you started drinking and smoking when you were about 10. Yeah. And then a few years later, you start taking drugs. Yeah. Um, you, you're stealing. Yeah. Um, and it just keeps on escalating. It and does. then also you became a football hooligan. Yes. Basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Supporting Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough, yeah. But, yeah. But so what, what was that world like? I mean, it was basically, it wasn't the football. No. It was a culture. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of a, the next step from what I'd been involved with. So as, as a, a gang member in, in this group that I was involved with, uh, we fought other gangs anyway. And schools fought schools in them days. And, and um, as I say, we were involved in some serious stuff. Um, I went to prison when I was 16. I went to a detention centre. And when I came out, a lot of the people who were in that gang when we were young were already older than me. So some of them had settled down and had children. And, and when I came out of prison, it was like, um, it was almost like I was kicking cans on the street because I didn't really see any more part of me in that gang. And then me and my friend met these lads who had been to a football match. And they were telling us in this pub and over the border in St Hilda's in Middlesbrough about what went on at the football matches. Now, I love to get involved with a bit of a fight here and there, you know. Um, and um, so I joined this this football firm called The Frontline and they picked up their name from a shop in Brixton, believe it or not, and uh, called Frontline Shop. And they were called Middlesbrough Frontline. I picked started going with them and didn't have a clue what to do, didn't know what to wear. I'd been in, uh, wearing Dr. Martin boots and uh, me and my friend were into two-tone music, you know, Madness and UB40 and all that, and um, the specials. And now uh, I'm going to go to these football matches. There's a whole different, like, thing you've got to wear. And so going to the matches was more about how you looked rather than watching the football. And, um, and and the excitement and the adrenaline are going to meet other firms. So you're right in what you say, that it wasn't so much about going to see the football, it was about the the attraction of looking the best. Um, and, you know, I don't know whether, because um, we didn't have any design shops in Middlesbrough, and my best friend, Dennis, he had a, a shop in the back, back bedroom of his house with all the designer clothes in he brought from London. So... Can you imagine how many people in Minnesota were going to his house to buy clothes and then the counterfeit clothes came in. But the whole uh, situation of going to that match and being involved with these fights, and I look back now and think I must have been absolutely insane and probably was because every match you go to, there's a chance you're going to die. Do you know what I mean? Especially with what we were doing, you know, in them times. Absolutely. I mean, the main aim was to get into their end. I mean, how mad can you be? Yes. You know what I mean? So often you get into the away, like you go to a away match and you go in where all them, their, we call them boys, where all their boys are. You're just crazy, you know. And very shortly I start getting injured, you know. I've been in Barcelona for Because football. it involved a lot of knives as well, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, well... At the beginning, I, I didn't see a lot of that, that going on, but when I came out of Barstool, I'd been in there 13 months, um, I started going back to the games, and Middlesbrough, were, a lot of people were carrying weapons, you know, and so I got cut here, West Ham, 
the Inter by the Intercity firm with a uh, East, it was at East Ham actually going to play West Ham. Uh, I was hit over the head with like a sword object. I had a bit of my chin took away. I had my finger chopped off. I'd been stabbed in the arm and chest four times. I had a bottle in both eyes. And so I was starting to get really injured. And that's what I was saying. Like, it was crazy that I was going to these matches to get kind of injured, if you get me. But I look back now and, you know, through all I'd been through, I see it as my kind of my self-harm yes because i remember the first time i got a real beating and i was in the police station i had a hole in my head and uh, I did, my arm was cut open so badly my muscle was coming from my arm and as i laid on the floor and there's blood everywhere i thought i deserve this this is what i deserve for the oh. for the monster i'd been to my mum but because you were a bad boy, yeah, I was. I'd got, is... Yeah, and I don't. I don't think my mum and my nana and my granddad deserved it, you know. So I, I kind of started really about probably the age of nineteen, twenty, started to feel bad about it, you know, inside. But it wasn't enough to stop me from the pull of these this lifestyle, this adrenaline, yeah, you know. And um, so I I ran with that firm went all around the country um, but most of the time I was in prison in them days you know in and out of jail um, getting sentences here and sentences there you know for football related crimes or something like that you know and there was one day you left prison in the morning yeah. and you you came back into prison yeah. on the same, same day, day. Yeah. and the uh, prison officer yeah. He was still on the same still shift. Still on the same same duty during prison. Yeah, he couldn't believe that you'd come back. No, because the the biggest said word of a prisoner is "I'll never come back." That's the most said word sentence of all. Uh, prisoners will always say, "I'll never come back." And what had happened is, I'd there was a what they call a gate arrest coming for me, and I came out of the prison uh, on the morning. And there was no one there. I didn't know I was getting a gate arrest where now they tell you. So I didn't know, but I'd just come out of the prison, got in a car and went. But I'd stopped at the shop at the bottom of Old Elbert, nicked some fags and some sweets and what have you and a drink and got in the, onto the uh, got into the taxi and went over to the bus wherever I went to. And uh, I was singing that song. I'm coming home, I've done my time. That's what I was singing. Yes. And uh, I get off into Middlesbrough, into the bus station. And I get picked up and took back to prison because I don't have to go to court because there's a bench warrant. And I go straight back to, back to old Elbert to Durham prison. And uh, the guy was still on duty, yeah. Couldn't believe it. Things deteriorated. Yeah. They got worse. Uh, you found yourself homeless. Yes. Uh, and interesting, you know, honestly, the story, your story is just gripping. But you rented this flat, but yeah. you you actually allowed prostitutes to have the flat yeah. because you felt sorry for them. Yeah, I, I didn't want them on the street and I didn't want to be inside, so... You uh, gave them the flat? I let them use the flat, yeah. But you had nowhere to live, so you no. actually chose a bench. A bench, yeah. Yeah, it was one particular bench? Yes, on Grange Road outside the post office. Why that bench? Um, well, that bench was, I knew... On the morning and during the day, people would be going in to catch the gyros and get the family allowance. And I knew I'd know them. So it was probably the place where you get more money from to, to ask people for money, you know. 
So every day, uh, Monday to Saturday lunchtime, because the post office shut at Saturday lunchtime, um, I begged money, really, on that bench. So, And it was the red light district at the time where on Grange Road, and the flat was just in St Aidan's Court. But I'd been in, I'd been, in, you know, I'd said I'd tried to change, I'd gone to Wakefield to live. And the deterioration came then, you know, and it was a gradual thing. I came back to the Teesside in 1992, November, started to drink heavier than I'd ever drank before. Then I, I that wasn't enough. And then I started taking heroin and crack and anything. But the drink was the vice for me. I drank more alcohol than I could yeah. ever imagine. Yes. But on that bench, and, and that flat was... A flat was, it had nothing in it, really. Nothing whatsoever, no electric or all like that. Um, and I wanted I, I, I wanted to be free. And I thought being free was, because I'd been in and out of jail, I, I wanted to be outside, sitting outside in the cold. And um, and the deterioration was very quick. So you um, slept on that bench yeah. for three and a half years? Yeah, or in the bushes nearby or somewhere, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. your home. My home, yeah. And sometimes you'd be in a t-shirt, freezing. Yeah. Freezing, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you had nowhere to go and wash and clean and look after yourself? No, no. no I, I, um, I had nowhere to go because there was no, nothing in the flat. So if I even went there, there was nothing to use to get clean or washed. Or So uh, the only place I could ever go was the boogies because... The post office was there and the bookies was next door, which is the bookmakers. And I'd, I'd go in there sometimes and try and fill my face. Or uh, I often got a big razor, tried to cut my hair, like bald. And obviously you can imagine what it was like. I did silly things, like I went to watch a film Bad Boys. Yes. And uh, noticed they had uh, gold teeth. So I went to Halfords, nicked a gold set of spray paint and took my false teeth out sprayed them gold and put them in. <laughs> Obviously, I'm drinking white lightning, so it was stripping the paint off, so I was rocking about with it. So I did absolutely crazy things. Then I lost my teeth, threw them out of a window one night in the Kentucky Fried Chicken Box, and I never seen them again. So there was a lot of things that went on in that time, but I, I eventually got a carrier carrier bag, a rubbish bin liner, put a, like a, a sleeping bag in it, hid it in the bushes, and... Uh, I knew the police were looking for me in 1994, so I went and slept in the bushes out the way. So there was a a, a real, a real uh, lonely, dark place, you know. Absolutely, but yeah. but some Christians yes started to come and speak with you. Tell yeah. us about that. So in 1996 March, um, Patrick Hinton, who was a, a local businessman, had set up a, a Teen Challenge Teesside. And uh, Teen Challenge Teesside, the first night they went on the streets, the first person they met was me. And now, when I was a young lad, my nana used to pray and sing about Jesus, but as I say, my nana was in a mental institution and she used to drink rum and black currant a lot on a weekend. And so on a Sunday when my nana was singing one day at a time, Three Jesus, the old rugged cross, I'd say to my mates, don't come round on a Sunday cross. I think my nana gets really poorly on a Sunday because she sings to this man called Jesus. She tried to get me to go to church uh, 
and, and do this confession course for 10 weeks or whatever it was, confirmation. And uh, so I went for the first week, walked in, and I want because I wanted to make my nana happy. And so I went round the back and just smoked and I pretended I'd been and obviously thought I wouldn't get caught, but at the end of the 10 weeks, I didn't have a, a certificate to say I'd done it. So, But when they told me about Jesus, the reason I told you that story is because the first thing they said to me, was an, there was an alcoholic there, an ex-alcoholic. He come up to me and he went, do you know Jesus loves you? And I chased him, told him to go away politely. I think I said something like, please leave me alone in French. But he went anyway. And, um, but I couldn't, I didn't know, like, you know, I didn't know really what love was. And I thought love was a, a manipulation tool used by a man. So if you want somebody, you just tell them you love them. Do you know what I mean? And it works, because it worked for me a long time, you know. Tell someone you love them, you get what you want. And um, and, and people had told me they loved me. And um, so I didn't understand the, this word love. And I certainly didn't want to know about this fellow called Jesus, you know. So that was the first night. And uh, it was quite... Um, they said it was a, a quite quite a, a significant thing for the Teen Challenge Teesside lads to meet me first, and then what happened afterwards was amazing, you know. But, but they kept visiting you. Yeah, Pete and Aidan and Nicky and Mike and all them. Didn't stop. Didn't stop coming every Friday. They were out on the streets talking to the... And do you know what was funny? Because I told them to go away that many times. Um, they used to be talking to the girls on the street, and they'd be talking loudly so I could hear, I'm sure, you know. And then I'd see them round town and I'd think, they'd shout, no, grandma, I'd think, oh, I'm not them again. So I, I seemed as though I couldn't get rid of them, do you know what I mean? They weren't following me, it was just, I believe God was on my case, you know. But then, so after that, um, you do a course, you Went do the Alpha, Alpha course. Yeah. And that was interesting. Go on, what happened there? So I, I got asked to go to this Alpha course, uh, and I was I was living in the back bedroom of a house at the time, wanting to get better. I was now already telling people not to take drugs and drink, and I thought that's my purpose. But people were laughing, saying you were the biggest culprit. How can we listen to you? So I felt bad. Felt like how am I going to help people? So I, when I told um, Tony and them, and they said we'll go to an alpha course. So I went to this alpha course, and I walked in. And, and the first thing I thought, well, what on earth am I doing here? And, um, you know, I was still swearing. You know, I didn't want to, but I, I still was. It was part of my vocabulary, you know. Sure. And, uh, in fact, when I stopped swearing, my sentences got shorter. You know, I had to learn new words like <laughs> favouritism and beautiful and cutie. But uh, I remember going sitting at this table thinking, what on earth am I doing here? You know, I just couldn't work out what I was doing there. And um, the first week and the second week, I'd never, in the life of me, never ever knew who Jesus really was. And the second week blew me away, really. Martin had, was speaking about why he died, and it gripped me. It really gripped me. I could not understand why no one had ever told me this before, you know. So that was the first time... Yeah. You'd, you'd heard this? I'd, I'd, I'd never ever heard it before in my life. I was 32 years old. I'd never ever heard why the Son of God, because he loved me so much, he chose to come and die for me, and it gripped me. 
it gripped me inside and the next week instead of me like wondering whether I should go or not the third week which is I'm going to be sure of my faith I couldn't wait to get there I couldn't wait the only problem I had in the small group at the end of the day at the talk I was swearing still and there was nice people around I didn't want to so I didn't say much so I was invited to the lad Martin Ruddock's house at the end of the day to after the course we'd go back to his house and He'd ask me questions and I'd tell him stories till like 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. And then uh, November the 9th, 1996, a quarter to three, was the Holy Spirit third talk. There's the finish of it. And I remember standing up and saying, Jesus, if you were real and, I, and, and I've heard so much that you love me, but words aren't enough now, you know, they're not enough. And it wasn't a command or a demand. I meant it with my heart. I pleaded with God. I said, Jesus, if you love me, please come into my life. And I said, if you come in, into my life, what I didn't know, I'll tell everyone. I'll tell everyone why you died for them. And I held my hands out like that. And as I held my hands out, and up in this point, from 10-year-old, 11-year-old, I cried for no one. I made the decision that 11-year-old never, ever to cry. I was sick of crying myself to sleep as a little boy. And I fell backwards into my seat and I started to weep. But these weren't tears of the little boy crying himself to sleep. They were tears of hope and joy. And yeah. I just knew I was, I was tingling all over. I was, I was alive. And it's mad, but I didn't realise till I got back home in Winniebanks that I'd stopped swearing. It had gone. I, I tried to do it, but it had gone. It had gone? M miraculously vanished, you know. And um, and the only thing I wanted to do that night was go and tell everyone on the streets of Middlesbrough that Jesus loved them. And that's what I did on November the 9th, 1996. 10 o'clock at night, I began my ministry and uh, nearly 25 years ago. And um, that was fun as well, because you can imagine what people were Absolutely. thinking. Absolutely. Well, you were totally transformed. Yeah, totally. I mean, you yeah. were born again. Total, totally born of God. Absolutely. But what is also remarkable, Graham, is that, you know, since then, for the last 25 years, you've been going into prisons, yeah. you've been going into all these different places, yeah. telling people, warning people and introducing people to Jesus. Yes. Yeah, that's it. And so that was my, not that I, I owe God anything or he makes me do it. I wanted to because I'd said in that prayer, I will tell everyone. And see, it's very important for Graham and, uh, to stay in my backyard. And when I say my backyard is to be with the people I grew up with or the people who were struggling like I was. So for me to get back in the in the prison was where I'd, I knew a lot of people would need help because that's where I was and a lot of my friends were in there. So for me to go back to prison, it needed to be a miracle. So three years later, that miracle happened. I was invited into Home House Prison. And um, in fact, when I went there, the prison officers were like shaking their heads because I'd been in that prison in 1995 as a prisoner. Now, three years later, I'm going into the main jail and they're like, hang on a minute, what's going on here? So the governor had said to me that um, 
some of the prison staff think I'm going to be bringing contraband in. So I had to be whiter than white and I'm under a microscope, you know. So I started to go in slowly. Then I became the chaplain of a, a, a secure training centre, a private Serco jail in concert called Asokfield. I was there 15 years before it closed down. Spent every week in there for 15 years, sometimes twice. I ran Christmas events and Easter, and I've travelled all around the country, been with Holy Trinity Brompton and Amazing. Uh, been to Ireland, Guernsey, Jersey, Paris, preaching the gospel in Scotland, Wales, uh, just to preach the gospel, really, to tell people that what I didn't know. And uh, I always say it's not rocket science because I didn't know it. And once I got to know it, that's what changed me. So that that's what I've done since, you know. And Jesus is good news. Absolutely the best Absolutely. news you could ever need, yeah. yeah. Graham, for any of our viewers, yeah. okay, who haven't yet received Jesus, yes. would you speak to our viewers? Yeah. And would you introduce them to Jesus? Yes, please, yeah, yeah. So you've heard my story and, um, you know, you won't know this, but... I travel a lot of miles and one of the things I want to tell you is I don't lie. Uh, I lived a lie and a lie hid me from the truth. And there's a great scripture in John 8, 32, it says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And I know the truth and the truth is, is Jesus set me free and um, it's real. And honestly, I, I really, really believe that if you say this prayer, you will begin a journey towards the greatest thing that you could ever have in your life. And um, and for me, is Jesus. So I want to pray. Uh, I'd like you to pray after me, uh, this prayer, because this was the prayer uh, that, that totally transformed the whole of my life. Um, so we're going to pray. So if you say this prayer after me, uh, Dear Lord Jesus, I acknowledge now that you died on a cross for my sins. I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life and set me free. I repent, Lord, of all I've done against you and all I've done against others. Please, Jesus, forgive me and help me to go forward towards you in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 If you prayed that prayer, a prayer for you, in the name of Jesus Christ, we announce and we pronounce his forgiveness. May you know his cleansing. May you know his deliverance. May you know his healing. May you be filled with his peace, his presence and his power. We pray protection for you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Amen. Graham, it's been a joy. Yeah. A joy to hear a little of your own story. Uh, your book, uh, One Step Beyond, is just absolutely gripping. And um, you, you're just a, a big giant teddy bear. That's right. You've yeah. got a soft heart. Yeah. And it's wonderful to know that you're helping so many other people. Thank you, Graham, for Thank joining you. us on Facing the Canon. Thank you for having me. 
I hope that has inspired you. Um, I'm always inspired uh, when I'm with Graham. What a story, a story of redemption. And if, if Christ can save, deliver and heal someone like Graham, it gives us hope for our own lives and for the lives of those people that we know. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. If you could ask God anything, what would you ask? Life is full of big questions. In his brand new book, Will I Be Fat in Heaven? and other curious questions, J. John answers 38 questions that we ask about God, the Bible, the world, and everything in between. How can God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit be one? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Will we recognize family and friends in heaven? And life's ultimate question, does God care about me? Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com.